0: You have all made it to the dance. You have all
1: made it, made it, made it. Coming to you from the X Access. It's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode three thirty nine host, Joan X, thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. We're kicking off our coverage from Denver Film Festival 45. That's right. DFF 45 just getting underway, and I've already got my first guest, and it's a damn good one. Julian Rubenstein joins me. He is the author of The Holly and also the director of the documentary The Holly, which is one of the special presentations at Denver Film Festival this year. I'm going. It's November 10th. There are a couple other showings that are already sold out. They added this third one at the Ellie Hawkins Opera House. I'm going to that one. I cannot wait. Because I have heard about this book quite a bit. I listened to Julian get interviewed on NPR, listened to him on CityCast Denver, and it's a fascinating story where we talk about everything from gangs to law enforcement to development to gentrification to anti-gang activism to the way police use confidential informants. There's a ton going on here. And what Julian has uncovered in largely following Terrence Roberts, who you may remember, was noteworthy a few years ago for shooting a gang member at his own peace rally, which, as I say in this episode, is like pure catnip if you're looking for viral content, right? That kind of thing just begs to be shared across social networks. What Julian has done is he has doggedly followed this story for seven years and gone back even further and talked about this from a historical perspective. And what you've got, from what I've read, I haven't seen it yet, but what I've read is just an incredible documentary that everyone seems to love. It's already won two awards in both New Mexico and Telluride, and it's coming here to Denver. So it is my pleasure it is my unique privilege to get to talk with Julian, and I think you're really going to dig this episode. couple of programming notes. I should have more episodes for you from DFF45. Keep your eye on the socials for that. J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle. I've also got another interview scheduled, this time with an author about a subject near and dear to my heart. So that's coming soon. Additionally... Love to encourage you to follow Happy Friday on the socials. It's Happy Friday Den on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're building this show from the ground up. It's me, Kevin, and Arthur from the Discussion Combustion podcast. And, man, we're six episodes in. We're having a great time. We've already hit our stride. If you're not subscribed to that, get on it. It's available every Friday morning at 5 a.m., ready for your commute, ready for your workout. Whatever you're doing, you're going to kick off the weekend with good vibes from the three of us, curating Great content from across the city, across the state, and bringing it right to you. So those are my plugs for now. Let's get to episode 339 of the John of All Trades podcast featuring Julian Rubenstein. He's an author. He's a director. And he is in town talking about the holly, which is what he talks to me about. And his episode starts right now.
0: Well, he's pretty much like you would expect in a certain way, um, <laughs> if you at least if you watched him as a player, especially sure. and and kind of if you listen to him. Of course, he's toned it down and he's on television, but um, I mean, he's irascible and he's very uh, he can be very off-putting, you know, and kind of uh, knows that he uh, has this kind of attitude and and sort of. It, it certainly likes that he is known for it. You know, he's, he likes to be the bad boy, despite the fact that, you know, he, he's, he both plays up being tormented and he's actually tormented, <laughs> I guess is the thing. Um, and so he's, uh, you know, he's a complicated guy. After I did that story, is in which I was able to report, thanks to the fact that he told me it out of his own mouth, about his drug use. And that was something a lot of people had wondered about for a long time and his father who was very much known as a high uh powered uh corporate lawyer in new york he called me up after the story and uh i can't remember how he would have even gotten my number but he had got me on the phone and um was sort of unhappy i could tell but it was sort of dancing around it and i just came out and said you know that like look um i actually really admire john which i do actually in so many ways because he was just i don't know like he's an amazing figure he, but like he's singular and i know how hard it,
1: like he's singular like yes, that's definitely. the thing about john McEnroe is like love him or hate him he is endlessly fascinating and so yeah i was yes. i mean as you said it i you know i'm happy to hear that he at least i wondered if he leaned into that bad boy thing or if it rubbed up against him like burlap you know what i mean and it sounds like depends on the situation, both. maybe a little both, yeah,
0: yeah, and but just i so I explained sort of this to his father, and you know his father just I think was sort of silently listening, but you know the point being that, like John, you know, like anyone, but especially him, he can be extremely sensitive and um yeah. about everything, and so they were he was they were very sensitive about this piece, which. Actually, most of the people who read it, I don't think, had any problem with him. They still loved him. But, you know, it's hard. <laughs> right. It can be hard. And he didn't give a lot of that. <laughs> he didn't give a lot of that kind of access. Um, so I, I, I had, uh, was able to spend a lot of time with him and a lot of time on the piece and try to sort of dissect his, you know, singular psych- psychology. And so it was it was, it was, was definitely a memorable piece. He's, he's kind of a dream uh, uh, person
1: to write about, of course. I, you know, oh, my God. Um, yeah, I, oh. I, I can't imagine... The joy and the challenge of, of interviewing and profiling someone like a John McEnroe, but that <laughs> that is a perfect sort of segue. I'm sure you get this intro all the time when you're talking to people about this film, <laughs> but um, <laughs> this is Julian Rubenstein, and you are the director of The Holly, which is premiering here, or, well, premiering at Denver Film Festival here very, very soon. It's been making the festival circuit and has already won a Telluride, and you told me right before we went on that it won at santa fe and i am deeply deeply looking forward to seeing this for a couple of reasons one i live not far from holly square um even like right now Uh, i drove through it the other day i was coming back from an errand i was running and i realized i was right by hiawatha davis uh rec center and i go oh right yeah i'm talking to julian this week that is super exciting And secondly, as someone who has made his bones interviewing people, the thing that strikes me the most about this years-long project, of which it was seven years of reporting for this book, and in the middle of which you started filming a documentary, is how do you, as a journalist—because journalists, especially now, are are almost like supercharged, and uh, people have their hackles up about journalists— how do you gain the trust of, and this is why I asked about McEnroe, because he doesn't allow uh, a lot of access like that. But how do you gain the trust of people in these communities to the point where you can tell their story in a way that no one else has?
0: Um, yeah, it, it, that actually is one of the hardest things. I get asked, or I've been asked more recently. Well, I've, I'm asked about that, but I keep getting asked, for example, about like, oh, doing a documentary, so your first documentary wasn't that really hard. And that, that part wasn't hard the hard part was what you just got at right there and that was hard um one of the things that i don't get a chance to talk about that much but is is uh what because if you want to put it in the broader context of my career because i do think i've it's one of the things i've been fortunate in, in some ability in is is getting gaining the trust of people including people who normally don't talk and one thing is that like um the only other documentary project I ever worked on was called the journalist and the shrink. And it was about me and my father <laughs> and my father was a, was a shrink. He was a, he was a psychiatrist. And so he also, you know, had to talk to people who are all kinds of people. One famous situation that there's even some footage of is when he was the air force base psychiatrist and he ended up having to talk, a guy who barricaded him himself. And, and I think multiple others, I don't know how many in a building and he, and he ended up getting everyone out of there safely. So I don't know if I got some of that from him or what, but that has sort of been what I've, I have just confidence into being in a situation with different types of people. But it was also to go, of course, much further, uh, in this specific situation, uh, there were many things they required and one of them was just simply showing up and being there and like caring about what was going on and listening to what they were saying, because, it was clear that so many of these people didn't feel that they had been listened to before. They felt that they didn't trust the media that on the one hand made it, of course could have made it difficult for me, but they saw me in a way that they preferred as not part of the Denver media or not part of the sure. establishment media. It was sort of an independent uh, journalist. Uh, Terrence has talked about how, of course he did look me up and, you know, I, I started not only interviewing him and one of the other difficult things was that he had to recognize that if I was going to do this and if he was going to give me the access, I was also going to talk to everyone else, too. Um, and, there's, <laughs> you know, a lot of discussion. So, yeah, it, it's uh, there's a lot of discussion, of course, about in this about who's telling whose stories these days. And I wasn't ready or prepared with a story like this to make it just the Terrence Roberts story. And I'm going to help tell that because I needed to really do this as an investigative Uh, journalist would because there were so many questions about so many people Um, so I I really wanted to maintain my independence in that way
1: yeah it's it's interesting to me in reading the synopsis about this is you take a pretty historical perspective here and I can tell you I'm a Colorado native and I mean you I think you were born in New York but you've spent the bulk of your life here right
0: I got here when, before I was two years old. Okay. We got to Denver, yeah.
1: That's definitely good enough. Um, yeah. it, there, there are some natives who do that dumb purity test, I, I'm, and I'm not about that. Yeah. I, but when I, I, when I was a kid, you know, I remember reading about the summer of violence, and I was about 12 years old. So we used to get a lot of like motivational speakers at my middle school and my high school talking about gang violence, gang prevention, and then. It, it's one of those things that's sort of cyclical. It'll disappear from the news for a while, and then it'll come back. And so, can you tell me a little bit about what you've uncovered in what contributes to that cyclical kind of cultural understanding of gangs?
0: So, one of the things that I hadn't thought of before that that you know did jump out at me is that part of the cyclical nature of it, at least in the media, is related to funding. Meaning oh, that, yeah. When, meaning that when the the law enforcement or the city is applying for funding they need to show that we have this problem and then once the funding comes they they of course part of the actual reporting includes these days especially like a media outreach so they hold meetings and they so they can help also that way control the message the way they want it to be. so one is frankly just in my view some manipulation of the actual story in terms of <laughs> how it's disseminated to the media. And, and I, now I was sort of like, you know, not part of that, which was what kind of enabled me to kind of fly under the radar of the people who are normally helping guide and control, you know, pretty successfully how these stories are kind of told or what, or, or what comes out. But of course, aside from that, there are other things and some of them have to do with what the efforts to stop the problem are. And, um, you know, the book in particular and the movie, but uh, in the book, I really go into detail about like some of the, you know, what the different approaches have been, what sorts of success or, 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 lack of it. They've had, you know, one thing that the movie I would say does look at is sort of unexpectedly, by the way, because the reason that I ended up filming was actually because while I thought I was out there reporting on this, crime in this community i ended up feeling like wow i'm standing in the middle of a crime in progress i better get the camera rolling so i did and that crime in progress it it were a few things but one of them was that when you know at the heart of the story is the shooting that terrence roberts an activist and former gang leader had committed during his own peace rally right and um, this was something that of course was confounding in a lot of ways and upsetting and and um uh, well, and because, Julian, it, it, wow. it,
1: it, it's one yeah. of those stories that is like pure catnip for a certain type of media outlet, right? You know, an, anti-gang activist shoots a gang member right before his own peace rally. I mean, that's that's one of those things that just is viral in its DNA.
0: Yeah, and and that's part of the for, for, partly for that reason it reached me at the time in New York and seeing it in the New York Times. So. You know, and enough questions were raised for me to be interested in wondering, you know, more about what happened and, and especially why. Um, how could this happen? And as I was looking into that, another thing started happening, which was, and this relates to the, you know, the cyclical stuff, or the, or, or especially the, how do we, or we, you know, being the public and or law enforcement or cities or community groups hope to fight or help this problem. And um Terrence Roberts admittedly shot this guy. He said it was in self-defense, but in the meantime he's sort of taken out of the scene. And it turned out that at the very time he was in fact the leading or his organization was the leading was the organization, I should say, on the ground in this neighborhood under a federally funded uh anti-gang effort called project safe neighborhoods. And so it wasn't just like, okay, Terrence is gone. What do we do next? It's like, Terrence is gone. We have this money um, and it's supposed to be part of this thing. And so the group that replaced Terrence really started to show these two kind of at least basic different sides of how to approach the problem. One being that a kind of a prevention model which often doesn't like to include law enforcement. This was actually where Terrence was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the model that's actually been favored by uh, many communities that have gang violence and um, who believe that that they haven't trusted the way law enforcement right. has handled it. And law enforcement's me- method is more of a sort of an intervention problem where they kind of attack the problem and the way they measure their success uh, is through arrests, the number of arrests, oh, yeah. which doesn't necessarily tell you a lot of other things about if it's successful or not. Um, and the movie and the book and what I started to see unfolding in front of me really started to show these two sides of it. And the, and, the, and the side that moved in was the law enforcement side, which included a group of guys who were active gang members, I guess sort of pretending that they were anti-gang <laughs> activists or at least being, <laughs> being paid and, 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 and what unfolded was pretty remarkable. And yeah. uh, I would say, you know, deserves some public scrutiny.
1: Well, 100%. So, okay, Julian, I'll give you an anecdote. <clears throat> we moved into Park Hill in 2013. And so we were kind of on the west side of Park Hill, closer to Colorado Boulevard. But across the street from us was a woman. She's black. She's lived there her entire life. She was probably, at the time, 56 years old. But she comes up to us, introduces herself. She's very friendly. But she says, you know, I don't understand why all you white people want to keep moving into this neighborhood. And I thought, that's interesting. And she goes, you know, you moved into a blood neighborhood. I'm not a blood myself. Some of my cousins are bloods. uh, And there are bloods on this block. And so that was really eye-opening for me because just the candor with which she spoke. And it was just sort of matter of fact. Like there was no value judgment to it, nothing. And me, being a kid from the suburbs, it really took me by surprise. And then the other thing I'll say is, uh, at at a certain point, uh, we were robbed. And she pointed out to me, she said, it's interesting because white people call the police. I thought that was really eye opening to me too. And I thought to myself, what has happened to you and your community that you don't feel like you can call police? And that to me sort of speaks to what you're articulating here yes you know with active gang members posing as anti-gang activists i mean that seems tied up in in a lot of really intractable problems am i on to something with that
0: without a doubt it's intractable because they're i would say systemic right because what you have here What you have by this very example is that active gang members are favored by the police because if they have a relationship with them, then they feel like, well, they're getting the inside stuff, but guess what? These guys probably also have some sort of protection, at least in the past. We've seen examples of of guys, and, and I'll just use the one analogy that most people seem to be able to relate to, is Whitey Bulger. Okay, the Irish mafia, you know, head... Yeah, was the departed, ...in yeah. Boston was, for 20 or 30 years was an actual FBI informant while he was operating this crime syndicate and murdering... At, well, I think he confessed, or you know, to 12 or 13, but it may have been into the 20s. So you have a serial mur- murderer working for law enforcement. <laughs> think about right. that. So I've unfortunately come to think that that's a model that's being replicated in communities, vulnerable communities all over the country. Mm. And uh, it's not being reported on because it's not being understood. Uh, And this story does go into that area.
1: Well, so one thing I've read is, and you've said in other interviews, I mean, you've been threatened personally by Mm -hmm. some of your reporting and what you've uncovered here. Does that bother you? I mean, do you ever think, like, maybe I should go back to interviewing the John McEnros of the world? Does it ever get (laughs) you down?
0: (laughs) McEnroe threatened me too. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> McEnroe practically threatened. I, I, I have to tell you, he threw me out of his uh, 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 whatever it was, his gallery. The last time I saw him there, I saw him after that a couple times. Okay. But uh, because he was unhappy, that I in fact, this is I forgot. It was because he was unhappy that I was interviewing other people that he knew, and I uh-huh. in fact did ask some of those other people about his drug use. I ended up not using none of what any of the, them said about his drug use. I only used what John himself said for the record. But anyway, but it wasn't. I thought it was fair game for me to ask them anything. I, I, I might ask them, but he didn't like it, of course, and uh, he did. I was so he was standing right in front of me, and I swear to God, I I actually seriously thought he was maybe gonna hit me. <laughs> I, um now He's not that big, as he as you probably know. But I'm I'm not that big. But he he might be an inch shorter.
1: Than yeah, me. but
0: he's but he's pretty scrappy. Yeah, yeah well I, I, I understand like that, forward. Julian.
1: But I mean, yeah. come on, we're we're talking about a tennis player getting pissed off that you're reporting no, I on. Definitely,
0: t- no. Of course, I was standing there. <laughs> I was like, all right, he might hit me. I don't know, but it's like I'm not going to flinch. And, I, and he didn't hit me. But, um, anyway, yes, it's different, but, uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, and you said something like, does it, how does it feel? Or yeah, I mean, it sucks. Like I'm not happy at all, of course, to have, uh, to potentially, uh, you know, have my safety at risk. I mean, the only thing I can say is that, you know, this is something I've now been dealing with for many years on this project. You know, the biggest hurdle was, when I first kind of realized I was getting to this thing and I kind of had to actually literally think about then whether this was going to be like a forever thing, because it was like, you know, already at that time I was aware that this might just keep dogging me now from now on. And I, it was actually, it was definitely a little hard to kind of like get over that hump because I had some resentment over it, even toward Terrence, actually, basically, because I felt like I'd been sort of drawn in, but, and I wasn't, and by the way, I never felt in danger from him um, uh, at all. But, um, but even though we had some pretty bad fights, we can talk about that separately, but, um, but anyway, um, he, um, so I, I, I was, no, I'm not happy about it, but I also recognized, I came to recognize that the reason I was in danger was also the reason I had to finish the project. I had to get it out there And it was because of the significance of what I was onto. That's the reason it's dangerous. Um, And um, so, yeah, but it's no, I was certainly not preferable.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I mean, certainly it seems to me like at this point with this project anyway. So, you know, you've got the book. The book has been out and been well received to incredible acclaim. Uh, the the film is now making its festival circuit. You've got Adam McKay on as an executive producer, which seems like it, it would lead to a longer tail for this kind of thing, whereas a lot of films that go to festivals don't end up – they they don't have the afterlife after the festival circuit, but this seems like it certainly has the potential for that.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I totally am. So we did it as it was it's a completely independent uh, film, and, and the more and more that I go through on that, I've actually realized – it's really, it's just, I, I think I knew this then, but it was the, simply the only way to do it. At the time, first of all, I had my hands full. I was reporting this incredibly complicated and even dangerous story that I was just like riding a bull. And then I was also trying to film it and make sure all that, which just added like a huge level of just stress and organization and extra things to do. And I was like, I don't even have time to like, I, I just like nothing. Like, And I, I can't try to now go and, if I remember thinking if I had like some deal for a film now, it actually just ruin everything. Like the, <laughs> the best thing about it was that we were just underground. We we're just flying under the radar. Yeah. Me and uh, usually one other cinematographer. I mean, I say usually being the other case being, it was me only wow. um, and, and on the camera as well. Um, but uh, because it was just, an, it, there was no way otherwise to do it. I mean, the, it's an intimate film in many ways. And it's the access that I think really makes it, significantly um different and revelatory and so I was um you know I I got through that the fundraising was hard but then at the end now we have this film that we didn't have to I, I mean I can't even imagine given the sensitivity of it in everything and I guess maybe my own feeling after so many years of doing it I hear from other people and you know if you have a deal if you have a if you're an original which is great in other ways if you're a Netflix original I mean Basically, those are we kind of precluded that in a way, unfortunately, because that, that's when they get involved early, but then they also decide how right. you know it's edited in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to choose the editor, they want to make have this input, and, and we made the film. I mean, I made it basically. I made it, of course, with important great people around me, but it was great to be able to do that unfettered. And now, yes, we're, we're basically looking for distribution. We're in a couple talks actually right now that we're hopeful about. I don't have any news to report right now, but we do hope that we're going to have uh, distribution so that we will, as you say, have a life beyond the festivals and, you know, people can... Right. Uh, we're hoping actually for uh, theatrical and streaming, so I would love if, if it's possible if we can make it happen because I'm happy that the film looks great in the theater and it, the people who've seen it in the theater have re- had really strong reactions and, of course, I want people to be able to watch it at home too, but uh, we'll see if we can get 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 both and and let it have a wider audience obviously. well
1: i i can tell you i don't break very much news on this show so that's quite all right that <laughs> you don't have a deal to i don't it. have the news anyway I,
0: I, i'm not holding it back i mean it's not yeah. don't have that news yet <laughs> but you know we're working
1: on it no 100 um as a result of this film um, because from my understanding and having not seen it yet but There are a lot of people in positions of power who are going to be rankled by what you've uncovered here and already have been perhaps upset. But let's say as a result of this film, actual systemic change is possible. What would that look like for you? I mean, having followed this this problem for as long as you have, what would you like to see uh, the evolution of the way gangs and crimes and police, uh, the way it all works here in Denver?
0: It's it's, uh, let's see. It's a lot to unpack, but I would first of all I would say, of course, I would. It doesn't seem. I wouldn't say it's realistic that, for example, because of this film. No, of course not. It would be one of many things, obviously, but um, and it would be great if it even had a chance because it's pretty hard a lot of times to 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 sort of see. Let's put it this way: the reason I made the book a multi-generational story is because I wanted to make sure I sort of clearly portrayed the fact that there are these cycles that just keep continuing. Right. And, and it's like, here we are. Oh, so much change. Well, for a lot of people, it was a shock in 2020 when, when we watched George Floyd basically get killed by a policeman. Yeah. It, 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 right when he knew people were even filming him. Yeah. And um so, um but, uh but really what it was, was just an example of that. There were then suddenly it's like, oh yeah, this is now happening all the time and it's been happening. And what happened to the change we thought had happened. So, can we change it? I mean, there's so much, but uh, at least it related to the sort of as it relates to um, a few things that I guess are in the area I, uh, that I covered, because um, the other thing about it that's quite interesting, I think, about this story, because there's a lot of stories that are um, nowadays, you know, obviously important and compelling that are also about, in a way, you know, law enforcement misconduct. Um, here you have a film that sort of connects a lot of dots that's beyond law enforcement problems that includes the uh, urban development issues and how that's being handled. And so I think that, like, it's, it's part of the problem and part of what I hope this will do, actually, is sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on how this, these things are actually happening. And, and honestly, hopefully have even some impact on the coverage. I've been starting to really uh, talk yeah. a lot about this. Even in in talks I've done, I talked about this at the investigative reporters and editors, I was on a panel about uh, sources and vetting sources. There are so many ways that we need to sort of like try to basically help better educate the public about what's happening. And then we can all have a more informed opinion about these kind of complex things that are really having serious impacts on our own community. And we don't understand them or we misunderstand them. So that's one area that could be improved. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, another one, I would personally say that the film and the book probably make, I hope, an obvious argument for why there may be problems using, you know, active gang members in these anti-gang efforts. Just as an example, especially when it's youth, I mean, and, and this is why it's almost worse than the Whitey Vulture situation with youth who are in, in these kind of roles these so-called anti, anti-gang anti programs are supposed to the kids like look up to these older guys right but when they're like wink wink we're really still bloods they're 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 not trying to get these kids not to be bloods they're just trying to you know get yeah. them under their and in their little circle it's all about influence and and numbers and all that so it's it's absolutely not helping the problem in my opinion if you're going to use those kind of guys now, how do you stop the problem in general? It's not easy I mean, it's not like oh, now it's gonna you just take care of itself. I mean, in the end, there's a lot of this as an economic you know disparity problem, you know economic inequalities yeah. so um you know it ties in anyway to to all of this stuff um, but but then and then the other thing, yeah, is just like looking at um the question which is does go on in in obviously in other cities, but why is it that some these criminal elements? in in cities are in many many times connected to you know city hall yeah um and the reality is at least in this case they use some of these guys as intimidators and ways of kind of getting things done that are sort of outside the purview of you know whatever
1: legislation yeah like like so i i do pr for a living and you know sometimes i will refer to dark arts pr and uh i mean what you're kind of alluding to is dark arts and in many ways like dirty pool Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, using, and so it's funny because I, I even think back to a movie like, uh, the movie Bullworth, which came out in like 1998 and, and Don, and so I wrote a couple of papers about that when I was in grad school and Don Cheadle gives a really, really interesting answer about why people turn to gangs in the first place. And it's because it's the most immediate way that they feel like they can affect change in their own communities. And so, My sense in talking to you and listening to you is until we can give people agency to affect change in their communities outside of gangs, that this problem will continue to persist.
0: So, yes. First of all, Don Cheadle, who's not only from Denver, but played Rocket, the crib, on the first really at least big uh, gang movie, um, Callers. Um, and uh, so anyway, he, not surprising that he would make a comment along those lines, but um, yeah, and the other thing I would say to that is that's exactly right, and then this whole story, in a lot of ways, hinges on a guy who was trying to do that, um, Terrence yeah. Roberts, who was trying to actually go back to his community and make a real difference. That, by the way, there's been, as you may have heard me say or seen or whatever, but there's been such a, an ocean of falsehoods about this project including, and I just heard this the other day, oh, Terrence was, was involved in criminal activity and all this stuff. And, and by the way, if he was, okay, it's, I missed it. But all I can say is I did investigate these charges, which appeared completely to come from people who had high motivation to say them and no evidence, on top of which, if he was at the time, he was law enforcement was all over him and frankly appeared <laughs> right. to be targeting him I felt so if he was why didn't they just arrest him because because yeah, you got
1: he it, man. Like, him, man like it's right there right
0: yeah they've arrested him for many other things he didn't do so I don't know why they wouldn't have just arrested him if he was doing that so I, I personally don't believe it but uh, I'd
1: be wrong. I'll tell you what um, I know you're uh, in the midst of a publicity blitz so I'm gonna let you get out of here now's the time on the show when we do plugs where can people find you find the holly the book the movie anything you want to plug the floor is yours
0: Great. Yeah, so first of all, we're really excited that our first three shows, our first two sh- shows at the um, Denver Film Festival sold out in three days, and they bumped us into the biggest theater there, the Ellie Calkins Opera House, and there thankfully are still tickets now available for that screening, which is November 10th, 8pm, um, and that's your chance to see the Holly here in Denver. Um and uh let's see, aside from that, yes, please do we will be actually i'm going to be putting out a letter <laughs> just to let you know um, an open letter to the mayor and others about the findings of the, of the movie next week, and if you want to follow all the news about that stuff, um I'm on social media if you just I, I can never remember the handles, but <laughs> if you were to search my name, you're going to find it and uh, and we we are on and the Holly is on Instagram, uh, just I believe it's just the Holly. Um, And we're trying to get that going with stuff. In fact, we are doing some ticket giveaways on our social media for the Holly. So you can also look out for that. And the the website is thehollyfilm.com.
1: Fantastic. All right. Don't hang up yet. Uh, Julian Rubenstein, this has been an enormous pleasure. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your dogged determination and work here. I cannot wait to see the film. We're going to link to all of that in the companion blog piece or in the show notes. If you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your pods, it'll all be right there. Julian, I thank you very much, and I wish you continued success.
0: Thanks for having me, John, and look forward to seeing you at at the show.
1: And that'll do it for episode 339 of the John of All Trades podcast with Julian Rubenstein, director of the documentary The Holly at Denver Film Festival 45. Cannot wait to see it. You should too. I'll have a link to where you can get tickets. That's on the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us, or the show notes, as you just heard me mention. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. I do all manner of traditional PR, but my focus lately has been podcasting. I've got nine shows under my umbrella right now. I'm happy to help you get yours on wheels. So hit me up, J O N at D E F T C O M dot Our sponsor is Four Degrees number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better, whether it's email marketing campaigns, social media marketing, online advertising, building a website. Basically, if you're trying to reach people online, 4Degrees is the firm to help you do it most efficiently and most effectively. And number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Follow me on social, J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Mondays, or Tuesdays in this case, since Monday was Halloween. Episodes drop on Wednesday. Pod catchers everywhere. Just search John of All Trades. Hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come right to you. Take a couple of seconds. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. I'm infinitely grateful for those of you who do. That's it for me this week. I will be back here next week. Stay tuned for more great content from Denver Film Festival. And until I hear you again... Say goodnight, Crazy. That's good, Johnny.